Chapter 7, God's Universal Revelation The Nature of Revelation Because man is finite and God is infinite, if man is to know God, it must come about by God's revelation of himself to man. By this, we mean God's manifestation of himself to man in such a way that man can know and fellowship with him. There are two basic classifications of revelation. On one hand, general revelation is God's communication of himself to all persons at all times and in all places. Special revelation, on the other hand, involves God's particular communications and manifestations of himself to particular persons at particular times, communications, and manifestations which are available now only by consultation of certain sacred writings. A closer examination of the definition of general revelation discloses that it refers to God's manifestation through nature, history, and the inner being of the human person. It is general in two senses, its universal availability, it is accessible to all persons at all times, and the content of the message. It is less particularized and detailed than special revelation. A number of questions need to be raised. One concerns the genuineness of the revelation. Is it really there? Further, we need to ask regarding the efficacy of this revelation. If it exists, what can be made of it? Can one construct a natural theology, a knowledge of God from nature? The loci of general revelation. The traditional loci of general revelation are three, nature, history, and the constitution of the human being. Scripture itself proposes that there is a knowledge of God available through the created physical order. The psalmist says, the heavens are telling the glory of God, which is found on Psalms chapter 19 verse 1. And Paul says, Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So there are so they are without excuse. That's in Romans chapter one verse twenty. This and numerous other passages, such as the nature Psalms, suggest that God has left evidence of himself in the world he has created. General revelation is most frequently thought of in connection with the amazing and impressive character of the creation, which seems to point to a very powerful and wise person who is capable of designing and producing intricate variety and beauty. The person who views the beauty of a sunset and the biology student dissecting a complex organism are exposed to indications of the greatness of God. The second locus of general revelation is history. If God is at work in the world and is moving towards certain goals, it should be possible to detect the trend of his work in events that occur as part of history. The evidence here is less impressive than that of nature. For one thing, history is less accessible than is nature. One must consult the historical record. Either he will be dependent upon second-hand materials the records and reports of others, or he will have to work from his own experience of history, which will often be a very limited segment, perhaps too limited to enable him to detect the overall pattern or trend. An example often cited of God's revelation in history is the preservation of the people of Israel. This small nation has survived over many centuries within a basically hostile environment, often in the face of severe opposition. Anyone who investigates the historical records will find a remarkable pattern. Some persons have found great significance in individual events of history, for instance, the evacuation of Dunkirk and the, ba the Battle of Midway in the World War II. Individual events, however, are more subject to differing interpretations than are the broader, longer-lasting trends of history such as the preservation of God's special people. The third locus of general revelation is God's highest earthly creation, man himself. 
Sometimes, God's general revelation is seen in the physical structure and mental capacities of man. It is, however, in the moral and spiritual qualities of man that God's character is best perceived. Humans make moral judgments, that is, judgments of what is right and wrong. This involves something more than our personal likes and dislikes, and something more than mere expediency. We often feel that we ought to do something, whether it is advantageous to us or not, and that others have a right to do something which we may not personally like. Despite the metaphysical skepticism of the critique of pure reason, Immanuel Kant asserts in the critique of practical reason that the moral imperative requires the postulate of a life hereafter and of a divine guarantor of values. Others, such as C.S. Lewis, Edward Carnell, and Francis Kaifer, have in more recent years called attention to the evidential value of the moral impulse which characterizes human beings. These theologians and philosophers do not contend that all persons hold to a given moral code. Rather, they stress simply the exist- existence of the moral impulse or moral consciousness. General revelation is also found in man's religious nature. In all cultures, at all times and places, humans have believed in the existence of a higher reality than themselves, and even of something higher than the human race collectively. While the exact nature of the belief and worship practice varies considerably from one religion to another, many see in this universal tendency toward worship of the holy the manifestation of a past knowledge of God, an internal sense of deity which, although it may be marred and distorted, is nonetheless still present and operating in, the hum- in human experience. The Reality and Efficacy of General Re- Revelation Natural Theology Regarding the nature, extent, and efficacy of general revelation, there are some rather sharply contrasting views. One of these positions is natural theology, which has had a long and conspicuous history within Christianity. It maintains not only that there is a valid, objective revelation of God in such spheres as nature, history, and human personality, but that it is actually possible to gain some true knowledge of God from these spheres. In other words, to construct a natural theology apart from the Bible. Certain assumptions are involved in this view. One is, of course, that there is an objective, valid, and rational general revelation that God actually has made himself known in nature, for example, and that patterns of meaning are objectively present independently of whether anyone perceives, understands, and accepts this revelation. In other words, Truth about God is actually present within the creation, not projected upon it by a believer who already knows God from other sources, such as the Bible. And this view assumes that nature is basically intact, that it has not been substantially distorted by anything that has occurred since the creation. In short, the world we find about is basically the world as it came from the creative hand of God and as it was intended to be. A second major assumption of natural theology is the integrity of you of the person perceiving and learning from the creation. Neither the natural limitations of humanity nor the effects of sin and the fall prevent him from recognizing and correctly interpreting the handiwork of the creator. In terms of categories to be developed at greater length later in this work, Natural theologians tend to be Arminian or even Pelagian in their thought, rather than Calvinistic or Augustinian. There are other assumptions as well. One is that there is a congruity between the human mind and the creation about us. The order of the human mind is basically the same as the order of the universe. The mind is capable of drawing inferences from the data it possesses since the structure of its thinking processes coheres with the structure of what it knows. 
the validity of the laws of logic is also assumed. Such logical principles as the law of identity, the law of contradiction, and the law of excluded middle are not merely abstract mental constructs, but they are true of the world. Natural theologians assiduously avoid paradoxes and logical contradictions, considering them something to be removed by a more complete logical scrutiny of the issues under consideration. A paradox is a sign of intellectual indigestion. Had it been more completely chewed, it would have disappeared. The core of natural theology is the idea that it is possible without a prior commitment of faith to the beliefs of Christianity and without relying upon any special authority such as an institution or the church or a document, the Bible, to come to a genuine knowledge of God on the basis of reason alone. Reason here refers to man's capacity to discover, understand, interpret, and evaluate the truth. Perhaps the outstanding example of natural theology in the history of the church is the massive effort of Thomas Aquinas. According to Thomas, all truth belongs to one or two realms. The lower realm is the realm of nature, the higher, the realm of grace. While the claims pertaining to the upper realm must be accepted on authority, those in the lower realm may be known by reason. It is important to note the historical situation out of which Thomas's view developed. In seeking the answers to major questions, the church had for centuries appealed to the authority of the Bible and or of the church's teaching. If one or both of these taught something, it was taken as true. Certain developments challenged this, however. One was a treatise by Peter Abelard entitled Sic et Non. It had been customary to consult the church fathers as a means of resolving issues facing the church. Abelard, however, compiled a list of 158 propositions on which the fathers disagreed. He cited statements on both sides of each of these propositions. Thus, it was apparent that resolving issues was not so simple as merely quoting the fathers. It would be necessary to find some way to choose whenever the fathers offered conflicting opinions. Reason is essential even in the utilization of authority. If this was an internal problem within the church, there was an external problem as well. The contact of the church with heterogeneous cultures. For the first time, the church was encountering Jews, Muslims, especially in Sicily and Spain, and even complete pagans on a large scale. It was of no value to quote one's authority to these persons. The Jew would simply quote his Torah, and the Muslim his Koran. And all of them, including the pagan, would simply look puzzled when the Christians, theologians cited the Bible or the church. If any real impact was to be made upon these persons, it would be necessary to enter some neutral arena with no, where no special authority need be appealed to, and to settle the matter on terms accepted by all rational men. This Thomas attempted to do. Thomas contended that he could prove certain beliefs by pure reason the existence of God, the immorality of the human soul, and the supernatural origin of the Catholic Church. More specific elements of doctrine such as the triune nature of God could not be known by unaided reason but must be accepted on authority. These are fruits of revelation, not truths of reason. Of course, if one of the natural truths established by reason is the divine origin of the Catholic Church, then by inference one has established its authority and, consequently, the truth of the higher or revealed matters on which it speaks. Reason rules the lower level, while the truths on the upper level are matters of faith. One of the traditional arguments for the existence of God is the cosmological proof. Thomas has three or possibly even four versions of this proof. The argument proceeds somewhat as follows. In the realm of our experience, everything that we know is caused by something else. There cannot, however, be an infinite regress of causes, for, it, for if that were the case, the whole series of causes would never have begun. There must, therefore, 
be some uncaused cause or unmoved mover or necessary being. And this we or all men call God. Anyone looking honestly at the evidence must reach this conclusion. Another argument frequently employed and found in Thomas as well is the teleological argument. This focuses particularly upon the phenomenon of orderliness or apparent purpose in the universe. Thomas observes that various parts of the universe exhibit behavior which is adaptive or which helps bring about desirable ends. When such behavior is displayed by human beings, we recognize that they have consciously willed and directed themselves toward that end. Some of the objects in our universe, however, cannot have done any purposive planning. Certainly rocks and atmosphere have not chosen to be as they are. Their ordering according to a purpose or design must come from somewhere else. Some intelligent being must therefore have ordered things in this desirable fashion and this being says thomas we call god sometimes the whole universe is considered in the teleological argument in such cases the universe is often compared to some mechanism for example if you were to find a watch lying on the sand we would immediately recognize it as a watch for all of its parts are ideally suited to the purpose of recording and displaying the time. We would certainly not say, what a, what a remarkable coincidence. We would recognize that some able persons must have planned and brought about the amazing way in which each part fits in with the other parts. Similarly, the way in which each part of nature meshes so well with every other part and the striking fashion in which various components of the whole seem adapted to the fulfillment of certain functions cannot be dismissed as a fortuitous concatenation of circumstances. Someone must have designed and constructed digestive systems, eyes, properly balanced atmospheres, and much else in our world. All his argues for the existence of a supreme designer, a wise and capable creator. There must be a God. These are two major arguments which have historically been employed in developing a natural theology. Two others which appear in the history of philosophy and theology, although perhaps less prominently than the cosmological and the theological arguments are the anthropological or and the ontological. The anthropological argument is not found explicitly in Thomas's thought, although it may be implicit in the fourth proof. It takes some of the aspects of human nature as a revelation of God. In Kant's formulation, in the Critic of Practical Reason, it appears somewhat as follows. We all possess a moral impulse or a categorical imperative. Following this impulse by behaving morally is not very well rewarded within this life, however. Being good does not always pay. Why should one be moral then? Would it not be wiser to act selfishly at times? There must be some basis for ethics and morality, some sort of reward, which in turn involves several factors, immortality and an undying soul, a coming time of judgment, and a God who establishes and supports values and who rewards good and punishes evil. Thus, the moral order, as contrasted with the natural order, requires the existence of God. All of these are empirical arguments. They proceed from observation of the universe by sense experience. The major or priori or rational argument is the ontological argument. This is a pure thought type of argument. It does not require one to go outside his own thinking, out of the realm of abstract thought, into the realm of sensory experience. In the Proslogion Anselm, formulated what is undoubtedly the most famous statement of the argument, René Descartes also presented a version of it, as did George Hegel, in a considerably different form. In more recent times, Charles Hartshorn has argued for its validity, and there has been renewed discussion of it in the 12th, 20th century by both theologians and philosophers. 
Anselm's statement of the argument is as follows. God is the greatest of all conceivable beings. Now, a being which does not exist cannot be the greatest of all conceivable beings. For the non-existent being of our conceptions would be greater if it had the attribute of existence. Therefore, by definition, God must exist. There have been several responses to this, many of which follow Kant's contention that, in effect, existence is not an attribute. A being that exists does not have some attribute or quality lacked by a similar being which does not exist. If I imagine a dollar and compare it with a real dollar, there is no difference in their, in their essence, in what they are. The only difference is in whether they are. There is a logical difference between the sentence, God is good, or loving, or holy, or just, and the sentence, God is. The former predicates some quality of God. The latter is a statement of existence. The point here is that existence is not a necessary predicate of the greatest of all conceivable beings. Such a being may exist or it may not. In either case, its essence is the same. It should also be noted that Ansem was working within a platonic framework in which the ideal is more real than the physical or material. A Critic of Natural Theology Despite natural theology's long and hallowed history, its its present effects do not seem overly impressive. If the arguments are valid and are adequately presented, any rational person should be convinced. Yet, numerous philosophers have raised criticisms against the proofs and many theologians have joined them. This may seem strange to some Christians. Why should any Christian be opposed to an effort to convince non-Christians of the truth of Christianity or at least of the existence of God? The answer is that use of these proofs may actually work to one's disadvantage if his desire is to make the most effective presentation possible of the claims of Christ. If the proofs are inadequate, then the unbeliever in rejecting the proofs may also reject the Christian message assuming that these proofs are the best grounds that can be offered for its acceptance. In rejecting one form of advocacy of the Christian message, a form which is not a matter of biblical revelation, there is the danger that the unbeliever will reject the message itself. Some of the problems in the arguments relate to assumptions which they contain. Thomas assumed that there cannot be an infinite regress of causes. To Thomas, this was not an assumption, but rather virtually an axiom or a first truth which is known intuitively. But numerous persons today would disagree. A linear sequence of causes is not the only way to view causation. Some would question the necessity of asking about ultimate causation. Even if one does ask, however, there is the possibility of a circle of causes with one cause within the closed system causing another. Similarly, the assumption that motion has to have a cause or explanation is not universally held today. Reality may well be dynamic rather than static. There is also criticism of the procedure of extending the argument from the observable to that which goes beyond experience. In the case of the watch found in the sand, we have something which can be verified by sense experience. We can actually check with the company whose name appears, coincidentally, on the watch and inquire as to whether they manufactured it. We might verify that they did, and perhaps even ascertain the date of manufacture and the identities of those who worked on it. Furthermore, we recognize that the watch is similar to other watches which we have seen before, being worn, offered for sale, and perhaps even manufactured. Thus, we can extrapolate from past experience. In the case of the world, however, we do not have something which can be so easily verified by sense experience. How many worlds have we observed being created? 
The assumption is that the universe is a member of a class of objects, including such things as watches and cameras, to which we can compare it, and thus we can make rational judgments about its design. This, however, must be established, not assumed, if the, or if the argument from the analogy of the watch is to succeed. A further problem was alluded to earlier. Suppose one succeeds in proving by a valid argument that this world must have a cause. One cannot, however, conclude from this that such a cause must be infinite. One can affirm only that there was a cause sufficient to account for the effect. That one can lift a hundred pound weight does not warrant the conclusion that he can lift any more than that because of the ease with which he lifted it. It might be speculated that he could certainly have lifted much more, but this has not been demonstrated. Similarly, one cannot prove the existence of an infinite creator from the existence of a finite universe. All that can be proved is a creator sufficiently powerful and wise to bring into being this universe, which, great though it, though it is, is nonetheless finite. In creating the universe, God may have done absolutely all he could, utterly exhausting himself in the process. In other words, what has been established is the existence of a very great but possibly limited God, not the infinite God that Christianity presents. A further argument is needed to prove that this is the God of Christianity and indeed the gods which constitute the conclusions of Thomas's several arguments are all the same being. If you were to have a natural theology, this must be argued on the basis of our human reason without resort to some other authority. Since the time of David Hume, the whole, the whole concept of cause has had a somewhat uncertain status. Cause, in some people's thinking, suggests a sort of absolute connection. If A is the cause of B, then whenever A occurs, B must necessarily also occur. Hume pointed out the flaw in this idea of necessary connection. The most we have is a constant conjunction. Whenever A has occurred in the past, it has always been followed by B. Yet, there is no empirical basis for saying that the next time A occurs, B must necessarily occur also. All that we have is a psychological disposition to expect B, but not a logical certainty. The teleological argument has come in for special criticism. Since Charles Darwin, the usual appeal to the intricacy and beauty of the organic realm has not carried a great deal of persuasiveness for those who accept the theory of organic evolution. They believe changes in characteristics have arisen through, arisen through chance variations called mutations. Some of these were advantageous and some were disadvantageous. In the struggle for survival occasioned by the fecundity of nature, any characteristic which enables a species to survive will be transmitted, and those branches of the species which lack this characteristic will tend to die out. Thus, the process of natural selection has produced the remarkable qualities which the teleological argument claims point to a design and a designer. To be sure, this criticism of the teleological argument has its shortcomings. Example, natural selection cannot explain away the inorganic adaptation observed in the universe. But the point is simply that those persons who accept evolution disagree with Thomas's assertion, assert, assertion that there is a compelling and necessary character to the conclusion of the teleological argument. The teleological argument also encounters the problem of what might be termed the dysteleological. If the argument is to be truly empirical, it must, of course, take into account the whole sweep of data. Now, the argument proceeds on the basis of seeming indications of a wise and benevolent God controlling the creation. But there are some disturbing features of the world as well, aspects of nature that do not seem very good. Natural catastrophes such as tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and a host of other acts of God, as the insurance companies term them, 
cause us to wonder what sort of designer planned the universe. Heart disease, cancer, cystic fibrosis, multiple sclerosis, and other destructive maladies wreak havoc upon humankind. In addition, man inflicts destructiveness, cruelty, injustice, and pain upon his fellows. If God is all-powerful and completely good, how can these things be? It is possible by emphasizing these features of the universe to construct an argument for either the non-existence of God or the existence of a non-good God. Perhaps that theological argument would then turn out to be an argument not for the existence of God but of the devil. When these considerations are taken into account, the teleological argument appears less than impressive. The Denial of General Revelation In addition to In addition to these philosophical objections, there are theological objections as well. Karl Barth, for example, rejected both natural theology and general revelation. Barth was educated in the standard liberalism descending from Albrecht Rich and Adolf von Harnack, and was particularly instructed by Wilhelm Hermann. Liberalism did not take the Bible very seriously, resting many of its assertions upon a type of natural theology. Barth had good reason, on an experiential basis, to be concerned about the belief in a general revelation and the liberals' attempt to develop a natural theology from it. He had seen the effect of two closely identifying developments in history with God's working. In 1914, he was shocked when a group of 94 German intellectuals endorsed Kaiser Wilhelm's war policy. The names of several of Barth's theology professors appeared on this list. They felt that God would accomplish his will in the world through the war policy. Their view of revelation had made them extremely undiscriminating regarding historical events. Together with the shift of Ernst Troeltsch from the Faculty of Theology to that of Philosophy, This disillusioning experience indicated to Barth the shallowness and bankruptcy of liberalism. Thus, from a theological standpoint, August 1914 in a sense marked the end of the 19th century in Europe. In the early 1930s, the process was virtually repeated. In desperate economic straits, Germany saw the hope of salvation in Adolf Hitler's National Socialist Party. A major segment of the state church endorsed this movement, seeing it as God's way of working in history. Barth spoke out against the Nazi government and, as a result, was forced to leave his teaching post in Germany. In each case, Later, political developments proved that Barth's apprehensions about the theological conclusions of liberalism were well-founded. It is important for us to note Barth's understanding of revelation. For Barth, revelation is redemptive in nature. To know God, to have correct information about Him, is to be related to Him in a salvific experience. Disagreeing with many other theologians, he comments that it is not possible to draw from Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 any statement regarding a natural union with God or knowledge of God on the part of man in himself and as such. In his debate with Emil Brunner, Barth said, How can Brunner maintain that a real knowledge of the true God, however imperfect it may be, and what knowledge of God is not imperfect, does not bring salvation? Barth is very skeptical of the view that man is able to know God apart from the revelation in Christ. This would mean that man can know the existence, the being of God, without knowing anything of the grace and mercy of God. This would ensure the unity of God since it would abstract his being from the fullness of his activity. If man could achieve some knowledge of God outside of his revelation, which is in Jesus Christ, man would have contributed at least in some small measure to his salvation, his spiritual standing with God. The principle of grace alone would be compromised. 
For Barth, revelation is always and only the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, the Word become flesh. Apart from the incarnation, there is no revelation. Behind this position lies, probably unrecognized by Barth, an existentialist conception of truth as person-to-person and subjective, going back both to Sren Kierkegaard and to Martin Buber, the possibility of knowledge of God outside the gracious revelation in Christ would eliminate the need for Christ. Barth must, however, face the problem of the existence of natural theology. Why has it arisen and persisted? He recognizes that several biblical passages have traditionally been cited as justification for engaging in natural theology. What is to be done with them? He states that the main line of scripture teaches that what unites man with God is, from God's side, his grace. How can there be then some other way by which man can approach God, another way of knowing him? There are three possible ways of handling the apparent discrepancy between this main line and the sideline of scripture, those passages which seem to speak of a natural theology. Number one, re-examine the main line to see whether it can be interpreted in such a way as to allow for the sideline. Second, number two, consider both valid but contradictory. Number three, interpret the sideline in such a way as not to contradict the main line. The first possibility has already been eliminated. What about maintaining that there simply are two contradictory notes here? producing a paradox. Contrary to what many people had expected, Barth rejected that alternative. Since the biblical witness is God's revelation rather than a human idea, contradictions cannot be present. That leaves only the third possibility, interpreting the sideline so as not to contradict the main line. In interpreting Psalm chapter 19, Barth understands verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard, as adversative to verses 1 and 2. Thus, the psalmist denies in verse 3 what he seems to be affirming in verses 1 and 2. The heavens, the days and nights, are actually mute. Barth also maintains that the first six verses of the psalm must be understood in the light of verses 7 to 14. Thus, the witness which man sees in the cosmos does not come about independently but in utter coordination with and subordination to the witness of God's speaking and acting, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, etc., in the people and among the people of Israel. Barth must admit that Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 definitely states that man has knowledge of God. Barth denies, however, that this knowledge of God is independent of the divine revelation of the gospel. Rather, he maintains that the people Paul has in view have already been presented with the revelation which God declared. After all, Paul does thus say the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against them. Verse 18. And in this same context, he says that he is eager to preach the gospel to the Romans, verse 15, and that he is not ashamed of this gospel since it is the power of God to them. Essentially, then, Bart's interpretation of both passages is the same. The person in view do find God in the cosmos, but they do so because they already know God from his special revelation. Therefore, what has happened is that they have read they have read into or projected upon the created order what they have known of him from the revelation it is true that in later portions of the church dogmatics barth seemed to modify his position somewhat here he granted that although jesus christ is the one true word and light of life the creation contains numerous lesser lights that display his glory Barth, however, does not speak of these as revelations, reserving that designation for the word. He retains the term lights. It is also notable that in his later su- summary statement, Evangelical Theology, 
Barth made no mention of a revelation through the created order. Thus, it seems to have made little or no real practical impact upon his theology. Barth's offensive against natural theology is understandable, especially given this given his experience with it, but he has overreacted. As we shall note in the next section, Barth engaged in some rather questionable exegesis. Apparently, his interpretations followed necessarily from his presuppositions, some of which are dubious. Number one, that God's revelation is exclusively in Jesus Christ. Number two, that genuine revelation is always responded to positively rather than being ignored or rejected. Number three, that knowledge of God is always redemptive or salvific in nature. Barth brought these assumptions to his interpretation of biblical passages which seem to speak of general revelation. That these assumptions lead to an overall conceptual scheme which has difficulty accounting for the data brings us brings us to the conclusion that one or more of them are inappropriate or invalid. Examination of relevant passages We need now to examine more closely several key passages dealing with the issue of general revelation and attempt to see exactly what they say. We will then draw the meanings of these several passages together in, into a coherent position on the subject. Of the many nature sums, all conveying the same basic meaning, Psalm chapter 19 is perhaps the most explicit. The language used is very vivid. The verb translated are telling is mesaparim. This is a pile participle form of safar. In the qual or simple stem, the verb means to count or reckon or number. In the pil, it means to recount or relate. The use of the participle suggests an ongoing process. The verb majid from nagad means to declare or show. The verb yabia, the hifil imperfect of naba, means to pour forth or emit, cause to bubble or belch forth. It especially conveys the idea of free-flowing spontaneous emission. The verb yakawe from kawa means simply to declare, tell, make known. On the surface, these verses assert that created nature tells forth God's glory. The real interpretive question here involves the status of verse 3, verse 4 in the Hebrew text, which literally says, There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Five major interpretations as to how this verse relates to the preceding verse have been offered. Number one, Verse 3 is saying that there are no words, that the witnesses are silent, speechless witnesses. They are inaudible but everywhere intelligible. If this were the case, however, verse 3 would have the effect of interrupting the flow of the hymn and the following verse ought to begin with a wow adversative. Number 2. Verse 3 should be taken as a circumstantial clause modifying the following verse. This is the interpretation of George Ewald. The verses would then be rendered without loud speech. Their sound has resounded throughout all the earth. There are both lexical and syntactical problems with this interpretation. Omer does not mean loud speech and Kawam does not mean their sound. Also, verse 3 contains nothing to betray any design subordination to the next verse. Number 3, verse 3 should be made independent and adversative. Thus, it effectively denies what the first two verses had affirmed. This is Bart's position. Yet one wonders what in the context suggests such as antithesis. In addition, one would expect the verb yatsa of verse 4 to appear already in verse 3. Furthermore, while some other interpretations of the verse require the supplying of one element of speech, Bart's interpretation would require both the wow conjunctive and the preposition with. 
neither of which is found here. Thus, his interpretation seems unduly complicated. The law of Occam's razor would suggest looking for and then adopting a simpler treatment which will yet adequately explain the verse. The interpretation of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others was that verse 3 should be rendered, There is no language and there are no words in which this message is not heard. This would emphasize the universality of the message coming to every nation and language group. In that case, however, you would expect to find Enlashon or Ensafa. Number five, the rendering followed by the Septuagint Campigus Vitringa and Ferdinand Hitzig is There is no language and there are no words whose voice is unheard that is inaudible. Or simply, there is no speech and there are no words inaudible. The last interpretation appears most desirable for several reasons. In the form, there is no speech and there are no words on inaudible, there is no need to supply missing words. Much depends here upon the translation of the negative particle belly. This particle is used chiefly to negate an adjective or participle, thus functioning as thus the prefixed alpha in Greek and a in English. An example of this usage is Beli Mashak in 2 Samuel 1.21, which the Revised Standard Version translates not anointed with oil. Such a rendering of Psalm 19.3 is perfectly natural, one not requiring insertion of any missing words. Moreover, not only that this rendering not contradict the preceding verses, but it actually accentuates or supports them. There remains the question of the relationship between verses 7 to 14 and the first six verses of the psalm. Barth suggests that the first part be interpreted in the light of the latter part. In general, interpreting a verse in the light of its context is a sound exegetical principle. In this case, however, suggesting, as Barth does, that the persons who find the witness in nature do so because they know the law of God seems artificial. There is no indication of such a link or transition. Consequently, what we have in the latter part of the psalm is an ascension to another topic, showing how the law goes beyond the revelation in the cosmos. Romans 1 and 2 is the other major passage dealing with general revelation. The particularly significant portion of chapter 1 is verses 18 to 32, which emphasizes the revelation of God in nature, whereas 2 verses 14 to 16 seems especially to elaborate the general revelation in human personality. The theme of the epistle is enunciated in verses 16 and 17 of the first chapter, that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. This this righteousness of God in providing salvation, however, presupposes the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. Verse 18. Paul is concerned to indicate how this wrath of God can be just. The answer is that the people on whom God's wrath is visited have the truth but suppress it by their unrighteousness. God has plainly shown them what can be known about him. This Self-manifestation has continued since the creation of the world, being perceived in the things that God has made. God's invisible qualities of eternal power and divinity are clearly perceived and consequently the wicked are without excuse. Verse 20 They had known God but did not honor or thank Him. Rather, their minds were darkened and they became futile in their thinking. The language of this passage is clear and strong. It is hard to interpret expressions like what can be known about God and has, has shown as pointing to anything other than an, ob- an objectively knowable truth about God. Similarly, although they knew God and the truth about God indicate possession of genuine and accurate knowledge. 
Bortz suggests Chon that the people in view are not man in the cosmos. Man in general is wrong. His argument is that the passage under consideration must be seen in the context of the gospel spoken of by Paul in verses 15 and 16. Thus, the latter part of the chapter, verses 18 to 32, has in view those Jews and Gentiles who were objectively confronted by the divine revelation and the gospel, verse 16. Note, however, that Paul does not say that the righteousness of God has been revealed to the ungodly. What he does say is that the wrath of God is against or upon them, while the things which can be known of him, verse 19, it is significant that Paul does not use the term gospel or or righteousness here, are in them and revealed to them, dative case. This distinction between the supernatural revelation of the wrath of God which is a part of special revelation and the revelation of his eternal power and deity in creation is further underscored by Paul's statement that the former is revealed against the ungodly because the latter is plain to them. Thus, it appears that they had the general revelation but not the special revelation, the gospel. They were aware of the eternal power and deity of God. They were not aware of his wrath and righteousness. To be sure, it was through special revelation that Paul knew of the judgment of these people, but they were in that condition simply because of their rejection of general revelation. Barth is confused on this point. The second chapter continues the argument. The point here seems to be that all Gentile and Jew alike are condemned. The Jews because they fail to do what they know the law to require, the Gentiles, because even without having the law, they also know enough to make them responsible to God for their actions, yet they disobey. When they do by nature what the law requires, they are showing that what the law requires is written on their hearts. Verses 14 to 15. Thus, whether having heard the law or not, these people know God's truth. Acts 14 verses 15 to 17 also deals with the issue of general revelation. The people of Lystra had thought Paul and Barnabas were gods. They began to worship them. In attempting to divest the people of this idea, Paul pointed out that they should turn to the God who had made heaven and earth. He then observed that even while God had allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, he had left a witness of himself to all peoples by doing good, providing rain and fruitful seasons and satisfying their hearts with food and gladness the point is the point is that god had given witness of himself by the benevolent preservation of his creation here the argument appears to relate to god's witness to himself in nature and perhaps even more so in history the final passage of particular significance for our purposes is acts 17 verses 22 to 31 Here, Paul appears before a group of philosophers, the Athenian Philosophical Society, as it were, on the Areopagus. Areopagus. Two points are of particular significance in Paul's presentation. First, Paul had noticed an altar to an unknown god in the Athenian's place of worship. He proceeded to proclaim this god to them, the god whom they sensed from their speculations without having had special revelation was the same God whom he knew from special manifestation. Second, he quoted an Athenian poet. Verse 28, The significant item here is that a pagan poet had been able to come to a spiritual truth without God's special revelation. general revelation but without natural theology. When we begin to draw these several passages together, the position proposed by Calvin appears more consistent with the biblical data and with the philosophical observations than do the positions proposed by Thomas and Barth. Basically, this is the view that God has given us an objective, valid, rational revelation of himself in nature, history, and human personality. Is therefore anyone who wants to observe it, regardless of whether anyone actually observes it, understands it, and believes it, it is nonetheless present. 
although it may seem well have been disturbed by the fall of man, it is objectively present. This is the conclusion to be drawn from passages like Psalm chapter 19 verses 1 and 2 and Romans chapter 1 verses 19 to 20. General revelation is not something read into nature by those who know God on other grounds. It is already present by the creation and continuing providence of God. Paul asserts, however, that man does not clearly perceive God in the general revelation. Sin, we are thinking here of both the fall of the human race and our continuing evil acts, has a double effect upon the efficacy of the general revelation. On the one hand, sin has marred the witness of the general revelation. The created order is now under a curse. Genesis 3 verses 17 to 19. The ground brings forth thorns and thistles for the man who would till it. Verse 18. Women must suffer the multipli- the multiplied anguish of childbearing. Verse 16. Paul speaks in Romans 18, Romans 8:18 to 25 about the creations having been subjected to futility. Verse 20. It waits for its liberation, verses 19, 21, and 23. As a result, its witness is somewhat refracted. While it is still God's creation and thus continues to witness to Him, it is not quite what it was when it came from the hand of the Maker. It is a spoiled creation. The testimony to the Maker is blurred. The more serious effect of sin and the fall is upon man himself. Scripture speaks in several places of the blindness and darkness of man's understanding. Romans 1.21 has already been noted where Paul says that men knew God but rejected this knowledge and blindness followed. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul attributes this blindness to the work of Satan. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. Although Paul is here referring to ability to see the light of the gospel, this blindness would doubtless affect the ability to see God in the creation as well. General revelation evidently does not enable the unbeliever to come to the knowledge of God. Paul's statements about general revelation Romans chapters 1 to 2 must be viewed in the light of what he says about sinful man Romans chapter 3 all men are under sin's power not none is righteous and the urgency of telling people about Christ chapter 10 verse 14 but how are men to call upon him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard And how are they to hear without a preacher? Thus, in Paul's mind, the possibility of constructing a full-scale natural theology seems seriously in question. What is necessary then is what Calvin calls the spectacles of faith. Calvin draws an analogy between the condition of the sinner and a man who has a sight problem. When the latter looks at an object, he sees it but indistinctly. It is blurry to him, but when he puts on spectacles, he can see clearly. Similarly, the sinner does not recognize God in the creation, but when the sinner puts on the spectacles of faith, his sight improves and he can see God in his handiwork. When one is exposed to the special revelation found in the gospel and responds, his mind is cleared through the effects of regeneration, enabling him to see distinctly what is there. He then is able to recognize in nature what he has more clearly seen in the special revelation. The psalmist, who saw a declaration of the glory of God in the heavens, saw it clearly because he had come to know God from the special revelation. But what he saw had always been genuinely and objectively there. He did not merely project it upon the creation as Barth would have us believe. It is worth noting that we do not find within scripture anything constituting a formal argument for the existence of God from the evidences within the general revelation. There is an assertion that God is seen in his handiwork, but this is scarcely a formal proof of his existence. 
and it is notable that when Paul made his presentation and appeal to the Athenians, some believed, some rejected, and some expressed interest in hearing more on, a, on another occasion. Acts chapter 17 verses 32 to 34. Thus, the conclusion that there is an objective general revelation, but that it cannot be used to construct a natural theology, seems to fit best the full data of scripture on the subject. General Revelation and Human Responsibility But what of the judgment of man spoken of by Paul in Romans 1 and 2? If it is just for God to condemn man, and if man can become guilty without having known God's special revelation, does that mean that man without special revelation can do what will enable him to avoid the condemnation of God? In Romans 2.14, Paul says, When Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Is Paul suggesting that they could have fulfilled the requirements of the law? But that is not possible even for those who have the law. See Galatians 3.10-11, as well as Romans 3. Paul also makes clear in Galatians 3.23-24 that the law was not a means of justifying us, but a... Yaoyos... To make us aware of our sin and to lead us to faith by bringing us to Christ. Now the internal law which the unbeliever has performs much the same function as does the law which the Jew has. From the revelation in nature, Romans 1, man ought to conclude that there exists a powerful eternal God. And from the revelation within, Romans 2, man should realize that he does not live up to the standard. While the content of the moral code will vary in different cultural situations, everyone has an inner compulsion that there is something to which he ought to adhere. And everyone should reach the conclusion that he is not fulfilling that standard. In other words, the knowledge of God which all men have, if they do not suppress it, should bring them to the conclusion that they are guilty in relationship to God. What if someone then were to throw himself upon the mercy of God, not knowing upon what basis that mercy was provided? Would he not, in a sense, be in the same situation as the Old Testament believers? The doctrine of Christ and his atoning work had not been fully revealed to these people, yet they knew that there was provision for the forgiveness of sins and that they could not be accepted on the merits of any works of their own. They had the form of the gospel without its full content, and they were saved. Now, if the God known in nature is the same as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as Paul seems to assert in Acts 17.23, then it would seem that a person who comes to a belief in a single powerful God who despairs of any works righteousness to please this holy God and who throws himself upon the mercy of this good God would be accepted as were the Old Testament believers. The basis of acceptance would be the work of Jesus Christ, even though the person involved is not conscious that this is how provision has been made for his salvation. We should note that the basis of salvation was apparently the same in the Old Testament as in the New. Salvation has always been appropriated by faith. Galatians 3, 6-9 This salvation rests upon Christ, deliverance of us, fi on the law. Verses 10 to 14 and 19 to 29. Nothing has been changed in that respect. What inference are we to draw then from Paul's statement in Romans 2 1 to 16? Is it conceivable that one can be saved by faith without having the special revelation? Paul seems to be laying open this theoretical possibility, yet, it is merely a theoretical possibility. It is highly questionable how many, if any, actually experience salvation without having special revelation. Paul suggests in Romans 3 that no one does. In, and in chapter 10, he urges the necessity of preaching the gospel, the special revelation, so that men may believe. Thus, it is apparent that in failing to respond to the light of general revelation which they have, 
Men are fully responsible for they have truly known God, but have willfully suppressed that truth. Thus, in effect, the general revelation serves, as does the law, merely to make guilty, not to make righteous. Implications of General Revelation There is a common ground or a point of contact between the believer and the non-believer or between the gospel and the thinking of the unbeliever. All persons have a knowledge of God. Although it may be suppressed to the extent of being unconscious or unrecognizable, it is nonetheless there, and there will be areas of sensitivity to which the message may be effectively directed as a starting point. These areas of sensitivity will vary from one person to another, but they will be there. There are features of the creation to which the believer may point, features which will enable the enable the unbeliever to recognize something of the truth of the message. It is therefore neither necessary nor desirable to fire the message at the hearer in an indiscriminate fashion. Number two, there is a possibility of some knowledge of divine truth outside the special revelation. We may understand more about the specially revealed truth by examining the general revelation. We understand in more complete detail the greatness of God. We comprehend more fully the image of God in man when we attend to the general revelation. This should be considered a supplement to, not a substitute for, special revelation. Since distortion of man's understanding of the general revelation is greater, the closer one gets the relationship between God and man. Thus, Sin produces relatively little obscuring effect upon the understanding of matters of physics, but a great deal with respect to matters of psychology and sociology. Yet, it is at those places where the potential for distortion is greatest that the most complete understanding is possible. God is just in condemning... Number three, God is just in condemning those who have never heard the gospel in the full informal sense. No one is completely without opportunity. All have known God. If they have not effectually perceived Him, it is because they have suppressed the truth. Thus, all are responsible. This this increases the motivation of missionary endeavor, for no one is innocent. All need to believe in God's offer of grace and the message needs to be taken to them. Number four, general revelation serves to explain the worldwide phenomenon of religion and religions. All persons are religious because all have a type of knowledge of God. From this indistinct and perhaps even unrecognizable revelation have been constructed religions which unfortunately are distortions of the true biblical religion. Number five, since both creation and the gospel are intelligible and coherent revelations of God, there is harmony between the two, a mutual reinforcement of one by the other. The biblical revelation is not totally distinct from what is known of the natural realm. Number six, genuine knowledge and genuine morality in unbelieving as well as believing man are not his own accomplishment. Truth arrived at apart from special revelation is still God's truth. Knowledge and morality are not so much discovery as they are uncovery of the truth God has structured into his entire universe, both physical and moral.